Well, I want to speak to you again this afternoon as last Lord's Day and the one before that on the subject of God's calling and our walk. God's calling and our walk. I'm using that brief title as kind of a summation for the entirety of the book of Ephesians. Thank you, brother. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, we have addressed God's calling. And in chapters 4 to 6, Paul moves into a discussion, a presentation of our walk. We have looked at this calling of God several times over the last few weeks, but I just want to say a few things by way of review. And perhaps you have a sheet that we were handing out earlier uh, that will help you, and you can follow along on that and if there's not enough room for notes, I apologize. Maybe bring some other sheets of paper or something like that. Um, if I gave you just a blank sheet of paper, it would be, oh, there was too much to write. If I give you too many notes, there's not enough room to write. So, you know, you're, uh, you're sunk either way. And uh, so we'll see if, uh, if, this, if this is helpful to you today. God's calling, as set forward in Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, is rooted fundamentally, in the eternal purpose of the triune God. He is saving a people for the display of his glory. He is seeking to display his glory, his weightiness before all of creation, and he does this in calling the people, as Paul will describe in the book of Acts, out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of of God out of death into life, and he brings them to himself, and it's his purpose to display his glory through them for all to see. And if you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here today, then you are part of that plan, and through you, he is intending to display his greatness for all to see. God's calling is not only rooted in God's eternal purpose, it is established in the definitive work of God for the church in creating her, or we might even say recreating her, as a new humanity in covenant with himself. We were estranged from God. We did not know God. We were without God, without hope in the world, as Paul describes us in Ephesians chapter 2. But God has come near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He has drawn us to himself. He has created us to be a new man, a new Adam, if you will, in Christ. And he has done this, and this is by way of his call. God's calling on the church is secured by his own building of the church to be a temple household in which he will come and dwell. The, 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 the covenanting relationship that God has with the church is not, is not just incidental to their own redemption, their own creation of this household. God is planning to come for all eternity and, as it were, dwell live within the church, within and through the church to display through this new temple household his glory to all creation. It is further carried forward successfully in the appointment of the apostle Paul to bear his name before the nations. 
You might remember when the Apostle Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, he was interrupted by the Lord Jesus Christ on his way to go and persecute Christians and perhaps put some to death. He was told by God to go, the Lord Jesus told him to go to Damascus, to Straight Street, to the house of Ananias. Ananias was this one who was told by God that Paul was the chosen instrument of God to preach his name. Christ is called to walk in a manner worthy of such a calling. This walk is laid out in full in the final chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and our attention has been focused on the opening section in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16 over the last few weeks, and Lord willing, we'll make it to the end of verse 16. I know some of you are skeptical that we might not make it there. I am also skeptical, but we will see what happens. Well, in this opening section of his exhortation, Paul lays before the Ephesian believers that their walk is to be toward, hear this, two great ends. And those great ends are these. They are to seek to preserve the unity of the Spirit, in verse 3, and they are to strive to attain to the unity of the faith, in verse 13. We touched on those two things a few weeks about, one might rightly say that their walk is to be a walk of unity, a spiritual walk that will put on display for all to observe the spiritual unity that God has already created in them as a body, that is the body of Christ, and that he intends to bring to full end in future glory. So get those two things. God has already done something. He has created a unity in the church, an objective unity in the church, and he will one day put that unity, that oneness, on full display for all to see. But now, here today, you and I are living kind of between those two poles. God has done something definitively in Christ, in the creation and establishment of the church. He will put that on full display for all to see in eternity Now we live kind of in the middle of these two realities. As we, as a church, press toward the glorious future day, we are to strive for a doctrinal unity that will protect us from the schemes of the enemy in leading us into error or confusion and set us on a steady course to grow up into Christ who is their head. Now, the first of these calls to unity, our spiritual unity, that we continue to unpack in these verses we want to return to today. So look with me again, if you will, in verses 1 to 6 of Ephesians chapter 4, and consider with me this afternoon the call of God to the church to walk in a manner worthy of her calling, to the end of maintaining the unity of the Spirit, which has already been objectively worked by God, and now must be subjectively, or we could even say experientially preserved or manifested. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body 
and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, the substance of the exhortation that we're given is simple and direct. It's found in chapter 4 and verse 1. It simply says, I implore you to walk. And the Spirit, through the inspired Word of God, is, is giving that same exhortation to you, the church, today. I implore you, Christ says, to walk. This walk to which all of God's people have been called is to be considered by way of five observations. Now, the first of these four observations, if you were here last Lord's Day, I don't want you to check out and take a nap, but we did cover these. And if they sound familiar, you can think, oh, okay, I heard these before. I hope we can sum them up just a little bit, but, but with each one, there is a corresponding application that we, we did not broach at all last week. And so I want to make sure we stress each one of these points of application, and we're going to do that with each observation. Sometimes we'll save up application for the end of the sermon like I did last week, and the problem with that is sometimes you don't get to it. And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to try to, with each point of observation from the text, make some pressing point of application. The first observation we see regarding our walk that is lined out in verses 1 to 6 is that our walk is fueled by lavish grace. The walk to which the believer, listen, the walk to which you are called as a believer in Christ, the walk to which you are called is fueled by lavish grace. God has not just said to you, just go do it. Just get it together. This is not like some kind of cosmic Nike commercial, you know, just do it. No, there's, there's, there's fuel provided for the, for, the, for the working that has to be done. We mentioned last time with this simple term, therefore, the opening of verse 1, therefore, Paul is transitioning in his letter from what we might call principle to practice. In chapters 1 to 3, he's lined out all the principles of God's great calling on the church, and now he wants us to engage and to to practice. He's moving from doctrine to devotion, from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. He's moving from gospel to law. He's moving from done to do. You might recall the words of Herman Ritterboss, He says that the imperative, that is the call to do something, the command, is grounded on the reality that has been given with the indicative, that is what has been done. He appeals to the indicative, and it's intended to bring that indicative, that work of God, to full development in the application or the engagement of the activity of walking. Let me me just make one point of application here, and that is this. If it is true that our walk, if it is true that your walk, if it's true that your faithfulness as a Christian, you want to be a faithful Christian. I've never met a Christian person that told me they wanted to be an unfaithful Christian. I mean, I've met unfaithful believers before. I've met people who say they're believers and they're very unfaithful, but I've never had one have the audacity to look at me and say, yes, I'm a Christian, and my goal in life is to be an unfaithful one. Uh, No, you don't see that. You see people saying, if you ask them, do you want to be a faithful Christian? Well, of course I want to be a faithful Christian. 
Well, if it is true that our walk, your walk, is fueled by lavish grace, then this calls for pause. This calls for pause on the part of every hearer of the word preached today to consider whether they are truly a recipient of such divine favor. You understand, friend, that if you have not received the grace of God to live the Christian life, then you cannot live the Christian life. That, that was very profound. No, it was not profound at all. It was very simple. If, if you have not received the grace by which you are to live the Christian life, then you cannot live the Christian life. This command to walk, insofar as it is a command of God to men to manifest in their lives his moral will, is a command that rests upon every one of you assembled here today. In fact, it is a command that in truth rests upon all men everywhere. Our confession of faith as a church states, the moral law doth forever bind all. As well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God, the creator who gave it. All men, all women, all those made in the image of God are bound to keep God's moral law and fulfill his moral will, which is expressed in it. This moral will is, according to our confession again, the same law that was first written in the heart of man at his creation and continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and has been most clearly expressed in the form of what we know as the Ten Commandments. Oh, I knew somebody, somebody would get to the Ten Commandments. Oh, law, the Ten Commandments. Yes, law, the Ten Commandments. Yes, God's moral will. The basic contents of this law and its requirements all men possess in the very fabric of their being, having been created in the image of God. Remember Paul's word to the Romans in Romans chapter 2. Don't turn there, just listen to it. Romans chapter 2, 14 to 15 says this. When Gentiles who do not have the law, the Gentile nations, they, they don't have the law written down. I didn't know you were going to use the psalm there that closes with the end. All the other nations, they don't even have the law of God. Remember Psalm, psalm 148, wasn't it? I'm drawing a blinker, 147. It's close, toward the end. Let me read it again. The last couple of verses in Psalm 147. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Romans chapter 3 says, To what advantage has the Jew? The Jew's advantage is great in every way. To begin with, they, they have the living oracles of the word of God. But the Gentile nations are not without some sense of knowledge of right and wrong. When Gentiles do not, who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, I'm reading again from Romans 2.14, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Did you hear that? Gentile nations, Gentile peoples, and that's what most of us are probably in here, unless you've done some kind of ancestry tree thing and you're like 100% Jewish. Most of us are going to fall in the category of Gentiles. And it says that Gentiles do 
instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In short, this is stating that men know in some sense the difference of right and wrong. Even if you're not a believer here today, even if you're not a believer, you have some kind of thing written within the moral fabric of your being that you know it's wrong to go outside this building, take your gun that you might have carried today, and shoot somebody that you see walking by aimlessly. I just thought I'd shoot them. You, you, you just don't do that kind of thing. You don't steal. You don't kill. You don't murder you don't bear false witness. You don't lie. I love that statement by C.S. Lewis. He says, you know, we might not all agree on how many wives you should have, but we all agree you can't have mine. You come taking my wife, I don't have a gun, but we're going to talk. You, friend, know the difference between right and wrong. You know that you are not to be proud. You're not to be haughty, selfish, impatient. Rather, you are to be humble, selfish, patient, kind, gentle, generous. You know, in short, that the manner of your life is measured up against a standard that you seldom, if ever, attain to. You know every day you fall short of the glory of God. You know every day you transgress the command of God. And I don't even mean the command of God written in stone. I mean the commands of God that are written on your heart. Augustine, the fourth century bishop from North Africa, once wrote a letter to a fellow bishop and said this, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to help, to know how Two, as the help of grace, or to know how to seek the help of grace. In another letter, he said, The usefulness of the law lies in convicting man of his infirmity and moving him to call upon the remedy of grace, which is in Christ. Or again, God commands what we cannot do, that we may know what we ought to seek from him. As we examine this calling in our brief text, friend. My prayer is that you will see the kind of walk that the Lord calls us to is simply too great for you to achieve on your own and that you might cry to him for mercy and grace, the mercy and grace that you need to fulfill this high and holy command. He is full of grace and full of mercy to provide you with all you need for life and for godliness. Or you can leave today with the sense that I'll try harder. I'll try harder to do better. Most of us have lived long enough to know that trying hard to do better just doesn't get it done. Every day, I continue to fall short of the glory of God. And I need the grace of God to live the life that God wants me to live. There's a second observation here. We find further that this walk to which we're called, a life fueled by grace, is also a walk that we are not called to walk alone. A second observation, our walk is modeled by faithful saints. 
Paul, again, here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord. I was first tempted to just kind of pass by that several months ago as just a descriptor of Paul saying, I'm in prison, all right? I'm writing this from prison. But he's holding this out. This is commonplace language for Paul to point to his imprisonment as a testimony to his faithfulness. He does this frequently in his writings. And considering his faithfulness, even under imprisonment, he exhorts his brethren who are not in prison to do the same. The Ephesian believers were not without a clear example of the kind of faithfulness called for in their calling. Their calling had indeed been modeled by faithful saints whom they knew very well, namely, and first in line, the Apostle Paul. Let me say to you that if it is true, if it is true that this walk has been modeled by faithful saints throughout the past, one should consider, I think it'd be wise for you to consider, one, the value of such examples and secure those examples. And here's the question I press upon you. Are you striving? Are you striving to be that example to someone else? One of the early writings of a group of men known as the Apostolic Fathers was a book by the title of First Clement. Clement was one of the elders of the church in Rome, and they were writing to uh, the congregation in Corinth, and they, they, they were writing because in the Corinthian congregation, this is sometime after the time of the apostles, maybe around 100, 120 AD, somewhere like that, and the believers in the, um, in the Corinthian congregation, there had been somewhat of a coup, and they had, they had taken the elders that were in place, and they'd given them the boot. Talk about the exercise of church power, as we talked about in Sunday school today. They'd given their elders the boot, appointed other elders, and the church in Rome heard about it, and they were like, this is terrible. These are faithful men. These are, these are godly men. They've, they've walked in faithfulness to Christ, and the congregation is kind of usurping their place and, and kicking these men out of the church in an, an improper way. He writes to them in chapter 45 of the letter, he says, Ye are contentious, brethren, and are zealous concerning things that pertain not to salvation. Look diligently into the Scriptures, which are the true sayings of the Holy Spirit. Ye know that nothing unjust or corrupt has been written in them, for ye will not find in them the just expelled by holy men. The just were persecuted, but it was by the lawless. Hmm, he's hinting at something there. They were thrown into prison, but it was by the unholy. They were stoned, but it was by sinners. They were slain, but it was by wicked men, even by those who had taken up an unjust envy against them. They, therefore, when they suffered all these things, suffered them with good report. For what shall we say, brethren? Was it by those that feared God that Daniel was cast into the den of lions? Was it by those who practiced the magnificent and glorious worship of the Most High that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were shut up in the fiery furnace? Let us not suppose that such was the case. Who then were the men who did these things? Abominable men. 
Men full of all kinds of wickedness were inflamed to such a degree of wrath that they cast into tortures those who with a holy and blameless purpose served God, not knowing that the Most High is a champion and defender of those who with a pure conscience serve his most excellent name, to whom be glory world without end. Amen. But they, abiding steadfastly in their confidence, have inherited honor and glory and have both exalted and made beautiful by God, been exalted and made beautiful by God in the memory that is made of them world without end. Amen. Hear this. To such examples ought we to cleave. To such examples ought we to cleave. For it is written, cleave unto them that are holy, for they that cleave unto them shall be made holy. And again, in another place, he saith, with the guiltless man thou shalt be guiltless, and with the excellent thou shalt be excellent, and with him that is crooked thou shalt be perverse. Let us therefore, his conclusion, cleave to the guiltless and the just, for they are the elect of God. Brothers and sisters, find, find examples of godliness. Find examples of faithfulness and cleave to them. But don't just hear and don't just see their examples of godliness and their examples of faithfulness. You strive to be that very example of godliness, that very example of faithfulness. I had the opportunity several weeks ago to have lunch with a young man, and I mentioned to him that everybody needs in their life a Paul. Everyone needs in their life someone who is pouring into them the word of God, someone who is teaching them the things of God, someone who is exhorting them in the truth. And everyone needs in their life a Barnabas, someone to come alongside and put their arm around him and encourage him and lift him up. What does Ecclesiastes say? Two are better than one, for when one falls, another can do what? They can help him up. But everybody needs not just a Paul. Everybody needs not just a Barnabas. Everybody needs a Timothy. Everybody needs someone to pour their life into. Everyone needs, you, you, you should not be content with just being the Timothy. You should want to be one who comes along and helps and admonishes. Now, I'm not saying that everybody needs to be a teacher and everybody needs to be a preacher. I mean, that's not the case. Did we not learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 the diversity of gifts but Paul does write, listen, Paul does write to the Roman believers in Romans chapter 15, and he says, I'm confident of you that you are able to what? Admonish one another. You as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ need to come along beside your brothers that need your help, your encouragement, your admonition. You also need to be learning regularly the word of God from those that God has given you to be teachers and you ought to have an opportunity as a faithful believer to come along beside a weakened saint and encourage them in the faith. What a blessing. What a blessing to have faithful models of faithful living. And what a wonderful privilege to be able to be that kind of model to someone else. Fathers, you can be that model to your sons. Wives, you can be that. Mothers, you can be that model to your daughters. Husbands, if you don't have children, be that model and that encouragement to your wife. Wife, be that encouragement and that model to your husband. 
brothers and sisters who are in the church and don't have husbands and wives and children, come along beside your brothers and sisters that you sit beside on Sunday morning, those beside you, those in front of you, those behind you, take time to be faithful that they might be encouraged in the things of Christ. There's a third observation from this text, and that is that our walk is measured by a heavenly calling. Notice back in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. One writer said that God's calling establishes the norm or the criterion to which their conduct should conform. Let me press this a little further by way of application to say this. If true that our walk is measured by a heavenly standard, then we must ever be careful not to measure ourselves by ourselves. And I could add here, by others, but rather seek the Lord to measure us in our progress. How easy, how easy it would be without attention to a heavenly standard to excuse ourselves for our shortcomings. After all, nobody's perfect, right? Ever heard that? Ever used that phrase? Isn't it easy how casually we can say nobody's perfect? Doesn't even bother us, does it? Nobody's perfect. It just kind of instantly has this salve, this comfort to our conscience. Well, nobody's perfect. Don't forget, friend, God is what? God is perfect. God is perfect. And the calling to which you have been called is a high and heavenly and holy calling. It is, in all sense, a perfect calling And he, Paul here, is exhorting us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And we have a high and heavenly, divine and perfect calling to manifest the glory of God for all to see. Find no comfort in no one's perfect. But let the realization that no one's perfect and that you are not perfect to humble your heart and cause you to run back again to Christ who is perfect. Let me point you to a text in Philippians chapter 3. If you're there in Ephesians, turn over to Philippians chapter 3, and let's hear from Paul there. Philippians chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 12. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Now, he has just finished speaking about how he wants to know Christ. He wants to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. He wants to be conformed to Christ's death. He wants to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I mean, Paul's vision is forward looking, he's looking for the future resurrection glory that he's promised in Christ. Then he comes back down to earth for a moment in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Note he doesn't say, I'm not perfect and that's okay. I'm just going to chill. I'm just going to relax for a while. 
I mean, nobody's perfect. And I live around a people that aren't perfect. And I feel pretty good about that. You know, I'm better than him and I'm better than her. And well, I might not be quite as good as him, but he's lived longer than me. And so just give me some time and I can catch up. No. He realizes his imperfection. He realizes he's not complete. He realizes he hasn't attained to everything for which Christ has called him to attain. But what does he do? In light of that, I press on. I press forward so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You ought to be having in the back of your mind here, Ephesians 1 through 3, the call that's been placed upon our lives. That's what he's pressing toward. That's the mark. That's the goal. That's the aim. You ever watch those, uh, you know, Olympic videos or the YouTube videos of those great, great races or whatever, and the guy falls down, you know, and you think he's out, but he does what? He gets back up, and he's like 200 meters behind, you know, lost a leg, but he's going to hop all the way to victory and pass the guy, and you're like, yes, this is great, all right? You know, Rocky's about to lose or whatever, but he's fighting back. He, the underdog moments there. Here's Paul. Paul says, look, I, I am one of these spiritual underdogs, and you and I are these kinds of spiritual underdogs, and he says what? Get up. Here's Paul like Mickey. <laughs> Get up! Get up! Some of you are thinking, oh, Mickey. Not Mickey Mouse, the other Mickey. Got to know your audience. Maybe nobody knows him as Mickey. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. This is not just like personal self-speak that we should use to kind of keep us going in a hard day. No, this is a whole life orientation, a whole focus of everything about my life. I'm pressing on to the goal. I press toward the goal for the prize. Here's our word, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is that call? This is your holy calling. This is the divine calling. This is the high calling. This is that calling saying to you, set your eye on the prize. And the full prize is the full display of the glory of God through all the church for all to see. All to the glory of God and to the joy of his people. We're not just trying to talk about how to get you through a hard day. We're talking about a reorient the whole of your life around something bigger than just you. Let us, verse 15, let us therefore as many as are perfect or mature or having a right mindset have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, verse 17, sounds almost like Ephesians 4.1 where he talks about, I'm a prisoner, join in following my example. I'm in prison, but I'm still an example for you. Join in following my example, and notice, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. We're back on those examples again. Find people in your church that live like this, and hang with them. You get the point. 
You need friends. You need people who will set for you the example of how to live life for the glory of God. If you're hanging around people that have their head in the dirt, then you will just get dirty. You need people who have their hope set on something greater. This is not just like a motivational speak, whatever. You know, I'm not Tony Robbins. I'm much fatter, not as tall. Even though I have this little thing on the side of my head, I feel like I'm in a conference somewhere. We're not just trying to motivate you for a better tomorrow. We're trying to set your mind on that which is eternal, and that is the glory of God and the good of the church. Listen to what he says in verse 18. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you weeping. I tell you weeping. He is crying his eyes out. His heart is broken as he thinks of this. There are people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. I'm not talking about earthly things. I'm talking about heavenly things. What do you think about? Every day, every day this world pulls you down to think about your job, your pains, your aches, your sicknesses, your burdens, and they're real. They're overwhelming. I face them. You face them. We all face them. But your mind cannot, it must not, just stay on earthly things. Even if they're good things. Do you realize that even a good thing can become an idol if it's set above God? And Paul is here saying, I'm weeping when I see men and women and boys and girls who live their lives, who've set their minds on earthly things. It's to live like you're an enemy of the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ, Christ came to die so that you might live. Christ came to bear your sin so that you might walk free. Christ came to reconcile all things. I can't make my big arms any bigger. He came to reconcile all things to himself. He came to make all things right in the world, and they won't be fully set right until he comes again. But I'm to live my life every day in light of that future coming when he will make all things right. Why, Paul? Because, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. I thought I was a citizen of America. Well, you know, you are that, all right? I guess, most of you probably. But there's a greater citizenship. Be a citizen of heaven. And friend, if you're here today and you're born again and you know the Lord Jesus Christ and your eyes on him, you're a citizen of his kingdom. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't been born again, if your eyes are still stuck on the world, you're not in his kingdom. The Bible says you're in the kingdom of Satan. But our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Well, I need to move on. A fourth observation is this. Our walk... Our walk is not simply a walk that is fueled by lavish grace, a walk that is modeled by faithful saints, a walk that is measured by a heavenly calling. Our walk is characterized by a true spirituality. 
And this is not to say that we are holier than others or we are better than others. It is simply to say that the kind of life that Christ calls you to is a truly, listen, a truly spiritual walk. Referring to this as true spirituality, we see it in verses verses 2 and 3. Notice back in in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent, reserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Referring to this as true spirituality, it's seen in these three phrases. You should walk with all humility and gentleness. And friend, this will be your walking like Christ himself, who was humble and gentle. Jesus said, are you burdened? Are you weary? And all men outside of Christ are burdened and weary. He says, take my yoke upon you, for I'm what? I'm I'm humble and I'm gentle in heart. We're to walk with patience, showing tolerance for one another. Why? Because walking with difficulty, with perseverance, will shape us and form us and conform us to the image of Christ. Can you imagine what it was like for Christ to grow up in the home that he did? I mean, his brothers, they were like total losers. Remember that moment in in John's gospel when when, uh, there's a feast going on down in Jerusalem and the brothers come, hey, why don't you go down there? You know, you want to be all big and everything. You want everybody to see you or whatever. And he's like, no, but you can go because the world doesn't hate you. They like you because you're just like them. This is kind of a loose paraphrase, but you get the point. It must have been horrible growing up with his brothers. Sometimes churches like that. Did he really say that? He did. Churches like that. You know, we are in right now, this is the great honeymoon phase, right? Or the engagement phase, I know. I guess that when we get married, we're going to go to the honeymoon phase, and that'll last for a little while. And then after a while, you know, it's going to be Ryan. Ryan's going to do something. Because, because it's not going to be me. I mean, I mean, you understand. I mean, I'm older. I've lived longer. I'm much more holy. I mean, please, it's going to be Ryan. Totally. Even Annika's smiling back there. She's saying, it's going to be Ryan. I know it's going to be him. It's probably going to be me. I mean, I've I've done this long enough to know who it's going to be. It's going to be me. I'm going to say something. I'm going to do something. I'm going to offend somebody. And Ryan's going to come to me, Jason, you need to talk about last Sunday's sermon. You know, you said that. Oh, I didn't know I said that. All right. It's going to be somebody. Why? Because all of us fall short of the glory of God. And we sin. And we sin sometimes against our brothers and sisters. We always sin against the Lord, but sometimes those sins are directed against our brothers and sisters. We sin against our wives. We sin against our pastors, and pastors sin against their flocks. We will need, before the storm, to be committed to the idea of walking, walking with difficult people with perseverance, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Brothers and sisters, if this all works, I'm going to be a means for you of sanctification. And I don't just mean by teaching and preaching the Word of God. I hope we help you by teaching and preaching the Word of God. But I mean I'm going to be an opportunity for you to practice patience. 
because I still have sin and I still have shortcomings and there will be times I will fail and I will fail miserably. But I'm praying and hoping that your eyes will be on Christ and he will give you the grace that you need to persevere even sometimes with a pastor who doesn't do it right. If it's true, if it's true, brothers and sisters, that the walk to which we have been called is a spiritual walk, then we should be pleading with the Lord to provide all we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ and the provision of his Holy Spirit living in and through us in our walking together. Here we return again to the need for grace. The walk to which we are called is, listen, it is a spiritual walk. It is not just mustering up in the flesh to get through. We're not just trying to, Ryan mentioned, pull up by our bootstraps. That's not what the Christian religion is. The Christian religion is not just God helps those who help themselves. Try harder, you'll do it better tomorrow. The Christian life is about a daily walk of dependence upon the grace that Christ provides. Let me end with one final observation and application, Lord willing, here. Our walk, this spiritual walk, this high and heavenly calling is grounded in the triune God. It is grounded in the triune God. He says in chapter 4 of Ephesians in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is at this point in the text what I would call an abrupt turn. It's an abrupt turn from the exhortation itself and the manner in which it should be carried out in verses 1 to 3 to the grounding or the foundation of the exhortation itself. Ryan McGraw here states that Paul is here, quote, grounding the church in the work of the triune God. The abruptness of the turn is it's smoothed out a little bit in our translations. The New American Standard opens verse 4, if you look at it there, with the little italicized phrase, there is. Italics in the New American Standard text means that that's not in the Greek. That's just a translational smoothing. And most of the translations do this. But if we just read it literally, the way the text starts is one body. So back up to verse 1, and hear the abruptness. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. One body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is an abrupt turn. What is he doing here? There's no exhortation. There's no direction. There's no encouragement. There are just seven statements of singularity. Easily a study of, could be done on each one of these, and we could have a seven-part series on this, but we don't have time for that. So, Noticing the seven points that are provided, one body, one spirit, one hope, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. I want us to group these. I think Paul does it here for us. We have to look a little bit at it. But if we stand back and kind of let the text kind of you know, take shape in our eyes as we're looking at it there, you're going to see a Trinitarian shape to the text. Verse 4. Everything in verse 4 revolves around the Holy Spirit. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Everything in verse 5 revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And everything in verse 6 revolves around God the Father, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In each of these, in each of these brief, terse, and sometimes even speedy statements, there's an interesting escalation of speed in verse 5. As we read from verse 4 to verse 5, just listen to it. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There are no conjunctions that connect them. There are no explanatory phrases. They're just put boom, 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 one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It speeds up as you move toward the end, just in simple reading. First, we see here that the walk of the church is grounded in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This one Spirit has placed us together in one body and provided for us one forward compelling hope that is part and parcel of our calling. I wish we had time to unpack this phrase, the hope of our calling. We've already talked about our calling being this high and glorious heavenly calling, seeing that future vision, that future picture of all things being to the glory of God. And it says the calling with which we have been called it, it includes, you know, like if we're trying to sell something, included with this will be hope. There is for the Christian, listen, there is for the Christian an internal aspiration and hope that ever pulls him or her forward to that future glory. It is the hope of our calling. This all revolves around the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that regenerates us. He is the one that renews us. He is the one that gives us that new birth from above and puts us into this body and instills in us that hope for the return of Christ and the consummation of all things. The walk of the church is further grounded not just in the Holy Spirit, but in the second person of the Trinity, the person and work of the Son. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. This one Lord, Jesus Christ, is the one in whom we have singularly trusted and into whose name we have been united, portrayed and pictured so vividly in the waters of baptism. But the walk of the church is further grounded, not just in the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Son, but also the person and the work of the Father. This one God and Father is the one who, it says here, is the one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, one might take verse 6 to be kind of pointing to this kind of universal picture of God, the God and Father of all generally. But the context here, I think, demands us to see that he is the God and Father of all specifically in the church. 
He is the God and Father of all, and in relationship to all of these, he stands over us as our sovereign. He is through all. He providentially controls all things. He is in all. He is over all, through all. This is much like, much like a text we find in Romans chapter 11. Remember Romans 11 in verse 36? For from him, you can probably quote it, for from him and through him and to him are all things. The order of the persons here is somewhat unexpected, but interestingly appearing in the same order in another text dealing with the unity and diversity of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me just remind you of that text. We heard it last month as, as uh, Ryan preached through this text. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. We might think in terms of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, kind of a theological you know, uh, laying out of the persons of the Trinity. But in the text in 1 Corinthians, as well as our text here in Ephesians chapter 4, we're kind of working backwards. We start with the Spirit, we then go to the Son, we then move into God the Father. F.F. Bruce, in his comments on this particular text, makes the note that we're not thinking so much in order theologically as much as we are thinking experientially. How do I come to know the Father? I come to know the Father through the Son. How do I come to know the Son? I come to know the Son because the Spirit opens my eyes and gives me new life. Remember that, uh, that old hymn, We Come to the Father. It's, I just don't want to sing that sometimes. We come to the Father through Jesus the Son. But how do we come to the Son? We come by the Spirit giving us new life, glorifying Christ, pointing us to Christ, drawing us to Christ, and Christ brings us to the Father. Let's just make a brief word by way of application. Brothers and sisters, if it is true that this walk is grounded in the triune God, then we should regularly seek, you should regularly seek a deeper knowledge of God. That is, a deeper and more personal knowledge of his divine being and of his works. And you should seek this in the place where he makes himself known to his people, primarily in his means of grace, of word and sacrament, and the corporate gathered assembly. From the letter of First Clement, again, just a little bit after where we stopped before in 1 Clement 46 and verse 5, it says this, Why are there strivings and anger and divisions and war among you? I mean, the, the, the early 2nd century church wasn't dealing with anything different than the 1st century church or the 21st century church. Why are there strivings? Why is there anger? Why is there division? Why is there war among you? And here's how he answers. Have we not one God and one Christ? Is not the spirit of grace which was poured out upon us one? Do you see what he's doing here? He's exhorting you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling by pointing to the singularity of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, or in the order we have here, God the Spirit, God the Son, God the Father who is over all, through all, and in all. He says, is not our calling one in Christ? We share, you and I, the same calling if we're in Christ. 
Why do we tear apart and rend asunder the members of Christ and make sedition against our body and come to such a degree of madness that we forget we are members of one another? Brothers and sisters, philosophers and theologians for years have referred to God as the sumum bonum or the highest good. Mahler defines this sumum bonum as God being the source and the end of all good. No, I'm not swimming the Tiber, but here is a wonderful word by Aquinas. He said this, God is the sumum bonum, that highest good, the possessor and possessed in one act, all that is desirable he has and is in an infinite degree, being in want of nothing. He has fruition in himself and desires nothing out of selfishness. If he diffuses, hear this, if he diffuses good, then that good redounds to the credit of all finite beings. Makes me think of the passage in Acts chapter 17 where Paul, speaking with the pagan philosophers, reminds them, quoting their own sources, says that in Him, in God, we live and move and have our very being. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, but he himself gives life and breath to all things. Brothers and sisters, friends, you this very moment are borrowing on the grace of God. He is sustaining your life, your being, your everything. Every breath that you take is borrowed from God. Every every move you make in life is overseen by the God who is one. My God, your God. Brothers and sisters, we are called. We are called to pursue a deeper knowledge of Christ, an experiential and a personal knowledge of his divine being and his works. And as we do that, as we grow in that, we will grow in our own oneness. We will grow in our own ability to Walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And brothers and sisters, let me just say one final thing to all of us who are here. You can only ever walk in such a way if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as that glorious God who has come and given his life a sacrifice for sinners so that you might come to know him and be a part of that glorious end time reality of him displaying his glory for all to see. If you do not know him, you cannot walk in this way. But friend, if you come to him today, you can know him. You can know him and even more importantly, you can be known by him. And he will bring you to himself, and he will give you every grace and every sufficiency by his provision to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. We thank you so for grace. Were it not for grace, where would we be? We are so dependent upon your mercy at every turn. I pray, Father, for myself and for all those who are here. I pray, O God, that you might, by your grace and for your glory, help us. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. 
by your grace, for your glory, and for our everlasting joy, we ask in Jesus' name.